0: Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is Episode 8 in our series for 2017, and today's date is Friday the 24th of March. And Leon, this week we're talking to David Moylan of Vault.
1: David Moylan is the Managing Director of Vault Intelligence, which creates risks and safety management software to help make workplaces safer.
0: And make it easier, I think, to get it right. And then after that, really very interesting uh, talk with Shane Oliver.
1: all about uh, what's going to happen with the Fed raising rates, what's going to happen with markets, and also with Theresa May signalling that she's going to trigger Brexit on uh, March 29th, next uh, Wednesday.
0: And of course, London will be is in shutdown as we speak over a terrorist attack, so it's all getting uh, around in Europe, isn't it? It certainly is. So, let's listen to David Moylan.
1: David, tell us about uh, Vault Intelligence. You you work in risk management and EATS solutions, is that right?
2: Uh, yes, we do. Look, it's, it's been a bit of an interesting journey and, and certainly for the Vault and Vault uh, Intelligence, uh, our, our mission, I guess, is out there to to make uh, workplaces safer uh, through using some really smart technology. And our evolution has been over the last uh, 10, 12 years. Um, heavily in the risk management area uh, in consultancy base and then the last seven eight years I've uh, started to uh, put some really smart uh, programmers and developers around me and uh, we've now built up some a great end-to-end EHS solution which sits in, firmly in that GRC stream uh, but it's, it's very much safety band.
1: Now your own background, uh, you were a former director of safety for the Australian Army weren't you? Uh,
2: yes I was. Um, I had uh, 20 years in the Australian Army, um, had a wonderful career there, enjoyed every moment of it. My last Uh, two years before I left the Australian Army I was Director of Safety and Risk Um, which was a nice springboard for jumping out and doing a lot of high-level consulting, uh, led me into various areas uh, in high-profile risk management jobs uh, and eventually culminating in being the senior risk manager for Shell operating in China. So it provided me a really good base for our systems, a really good base for uh, developing some really smart tools which could help business uh, and that's the wonderful team that I put around me now.
1: Tell us about the market itself. I mean, it would be fairly fragmented, wouldn't it, the EHS software market?
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting market and uh, having uh, I guess, a part of that market for some uh, 15 years myself. It, it is very much a uh, fragmented market, uh, a lot of organizations, two to three um, people in size which are consultants going out there and advising uh, people in the workplace. Very rare do you get uh, anyone that's over probably um, the 10 mark in terms of uh, uh, that size so it is very restrictive in terms of uh, what is available. I guess we're we're quite unique where we're we're actually uh, an organisation 30 plus strong Um, so we'd like to um, certainly promote that we are a leader in the health and safety um, area and it's something that we're pushing very strongly through our software is that we can provide these solutions. We're building up some wonderful relationships with other consultancy companies and so forth and that certainly makes us a pretty strong. Strong organisation to be able to help business out.
0: What are the main areas of risk in this in this atmosphere? Could you enumerate some of them?
2: Yeah, look, uh, I, I think uh, all of us, uh, including myself as um, as a CEO running a business, now we're, we're faced with many challenges, and probably our biggest one is trying to manage risk in uh, in our operating environment. Um, we've obviously focused firmly in the health and safety market and I, I guess if you look across Australia and New Zealand, for that matter, where we operate, uh, there's been a lot of change in legislation. Companies are struggling with understanding their exact requirements, struggling with the challenge of um, how do they meet compliance and are they actually meeting compliance? And this is where we provide uh, some great services and, and products to assist them in those tools, but it all still takes that commitment. Businesses still trying to actually obviously look after their workers, but also look after their regulatory requirements, as well as obviously make a dollar, which uh, all businesses need to. So that's where we try to get that even balance, and that's where, I guess, you now we certainly like to provide those solutions to assist there as much as we
0: can. Would you your service, your consultancy, cover say if you look at say Foxconn in Shenzhen, uh, where there's been a high suicide rate, some of which has been done on work practices, and mm. of course, despite the fact that suicide is fairly common in China, would your service cover that sort of area?
2: Yeah, look, uh, it's a really interesting question that you're probing there, and and, and I think one of our, our key areas that we're all seeing in the health and safety area now is the is that mental wellness and well-being in the workplace um it, it is certainly a big focus for business that it's not just the physical injuries and uh uh, complications that can arise from there. It's about looking after the well-being of your workers, and obviously having a, a nice, safe, uh, healthy work environment is a strong contributing factor to that mental well-being as well. So it is a focus of uh, our systems. We obviously uh, look at all areas of risk uh, in a business, but with a firm focus on that safety and well-being. So we like to be able to to look at risk, be able to analyse all those contributing factors that might might be exacerbating the degree of risk in a business, and then put appropriate control measures in place. And that's where our systems really pick up and be able to analyze, do that kind of trending, try to do that preventative action before we actually do have an event such as someone, unfortunately, uh, helping hurting themselves, um, which is what we're all trying to achieve in terms of trying to be able to reduce that injury rate. Uh, in business.
1: Now, I understand you've moved to a software as a service model.
2: Is that right? Yeah, look, it's it's, it's been a really interesting one. And and I think this is part of the changing times and and something that uh, for a software company operating in that safety IT area, it's something that uh, business has been crying out for that we want to actually uh, rather than using all our capital fundings to pay uh, a large fee up front. If we can stagger that over two, three-year periods, then fantastic. And so we're in a position now where we can obviously offer that kind of service and, and the software as a service solution is working wonderfully. It allows the businesses to uh, to free up some of their, their cash, be able to maintain their, their own cash flows and be able to budget. And for us, it's 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 been a really good business model because uh, it allows us to actually build our recurring business uh, funding there as well, which uh, assists with our own cash flow. So it's it's something that we've been uh, modelling around. Uh, we originally, um, probably three to four years ago, we we're firmly into a, a capex type model and a small retainer uh, years two, three, four. And, and onwards, but uh, the SaaS solution is something that is working very nicely there right now.
1: Who are some of your big name clients?
2: We're, we're very fortunate in the uh, in, in terms of our clients, and we're, we're across about 30 uh, industries. Some of our bigger ones would be uh, the Coca-Cola Amatil across Australia, New Zealand, and uh, Indonesia. Uh, we have Busy Packaging, which has been a nice long-term uh, client of ours as well. Uh, we then go into uh, large um, facility facilities companies such as, uh, OCS and, uh, programmed. Uh, we, we're, we're in a lot of universities, a lot of, uh, councils, uh, across Australia and New Zealand. We have in the vicinity of 23 councils, uh, which is, uh, uh, a nice nice group to w- be working with and certainly gives us nice exposure into the government and councils and what is actually happening in that area. Yeah, and uh, th- there's not too many industries that we don't have a, a, a highly recognised blue-chip type client.
1: So uh, wh- where would you see the scope of uh, further uh, geographic and industry expansion?
2: Yeah, look, look, it's exciting times for us at the moment. Having uh, listed on 1 July, uh, that was a, a, a long and lengthy process for us to go through. Uh, the dust now settling and uh, we're firmly establishing our footprints across uh, Australasia. We do have our sites into other regions. We've um, we started a reseller program into Asia at the moment, uh, which is showing some fine results and we're starting to make uh, sales in those type of uh, regions now. And uh, not to, not too distant future, I would think in 2017-18, uh, we'll we certainly look at um, our product range and how it can actually best fit into the US market as well. And we are looking at that from a strategic point of view from the board um, as we speak. Are
0: there any cult problems you, you meet? I mean, for example, where you've got, say, Hongzhou and Shenzhen in China, a mm. lot of very small, uh, would a lot of people call them sweatshops, supplying bigger corporations. Do you get involved in that sort of thing? No, we
2: haven't at this stage, but uh, we find a lot of the corporate companies which are operating on a global perspective certainly do uh, like to, obviously, um, maintain high standards. They're looking at how they can improve the standards you know, right down to their supplier level. And their contractors and that is a requirement you now that they obviously take on both from um i guess a legal and a, and a moral uh, point of view and so we are seeing that, that changing quite significantly um we would hope that you know How we can best uh, suit those type of companies where they are operating in some difficult regions where perhaps their standards are not as high as what we maintain across Australia is something that we can hopefully uh, help to improve there and and one of the ways that we're looking at doing that is is um, particularly with our mobile applications is being able to have those language files convertible to those different languages to suit different regions so we can maximize the uh, employee uh, participation which is essential in all our type of uh, products that we provide.
1: Uh, David Moylan, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you. Very much appreciated.
0: Well, very interesting. I mean, technology moving into business in a big way, isn't it?
1: And what better place to do that than uh, safety?
0: Exactly right. So
1: now, Shane Oliver, Leon. Shane Oliver, the um, Fed lifted rates, and uh, contrary to what's often around, the uh, market actually rose. What's your view about that?
3: I think what's happened here is that the market is now taking the Fed in it's rides. There used to be a rule, an old market rule that said, Two steps and a stumble. In other words, the Fed would raise interest rates first couple of times, but by the time we get to the third rate hike, um, it actually has a stumble because investors get worried about the future. Whereas I think what's happened in the last 20 years is that market nervousness usually sits in around the first rate hike, Think about uh, way back in June 2004, there's a bit of a correction associated with that. And also the first rate hike in this cycle, which was in December 2015, certainly associated with the correction in share markets at the time. Whereas now I think what's happening is that investors are saying, well, yes, the Fed's raising interest rates, but they're coming from a very low base. And the reason they're raising interest rates is because the US economy is stronger. Um, this is all at a time when the world economy is stronger, so we're less concerned about the Fed raising rates and consequently um, the markets actually rose rather than fell. So I think that's what's happening here. The last uh, last two decades would tell us that Fed rate hikes will only become a major problem when interest rates in the US become high whatever that is. Um, of course, the, the context changes as the years go by, but uh, I suspect we've got a fair way to go yet before uh, rate hikes in the US cause a major problem for US shares.
1: Well, they're talking about two more rate hikes this year and then three in 2018.
3: The Fed is certainly uh, signalling more to come, um, and therefore, uh, you know, we're going to be kept on our toes every time they have a meeting um, to see what the Fed does. But, uh at this stage, my feeling is that we're probably looking at you know, rates getting at least well above 2% before it starts to become a major problem for the US share market.
1: Right, and uh, that's still some fair way off. It's
3: still going to be a fair way off before we get above those levels. It's potentially a, uh, a 2018, maybe 2019 story before it becomes a potential problem. And, of course, we'd have to assess, assess the situation at the time. But at the moment, as long as the US economy U.S. economic indicators remain healthy as long as uh, global growth continues at a reasonable pace or a solid pace, and as, US, as long as U.S. profits are rising, then I think uh, rate hikes in the U.S. probably uh, are something that investors will just have to get used to, and they're probably not going to be um, a, a major problem.
1: One of the interesting things I noticed in the statement from the uh, Federal Open Markets Committee was that uh, they, they were... Well, they were more moderate in their forecast for the U.S. economy than some of the ebullient optimism we'd seen coming from Donald Donald Trump. I mean, they were talking about growth rates of about two, two and a half percent. Donald Trump has been talking about much more than that. I mean, what's your view about that?
3: Well, yeah, Trump's uh, been talking at times about four percent, whereas, of course, the U.S. Federal Reserve has to be more realistic about things. And they're not politicians, they're economists. And uh, the recent experience certainly hasn't been consistent with a boom in US growth. I mean, the economic indicators are good, but um, GDP numbers, as they've been coming out, have had growth around 2% or less uh, lately. So there's no sign of a boom in the US economy. And I I guess the Fed kind of thinks, well, Donald Trump's talking about doing all these sorts of things, such as a fiscal stimulus or deregulating the economy or tax cuts, you know with references, I guess, back to the supply side boost that uh, the tax cuts of the 1980s provided in the US. Um, But at the moment, those things are yet to come to pass. They haven't really happened. And uh, the Fed's still in this sort of zone where they're they're waiting to see what Donald Trump actually does. I I guess all the Fed has got to go on is what's happening here and now. So that's why they're they're stuck around those 2% sort of numbers rather than anything more.
1: So they just have to work with that sort of uncertainty of uh, seeing what's ahead. That's right. You know, at
3: some point, Donald Trump and Congress will agree some sort of package of measures that relate to the economy, particularly around infrastructure spending and tax cuts. But uh, at the moment, we're still a, a fair way off from that. I mean, Donald Trump has submitted a budget to Congress, which uh, just looked like a bunch of ambit claims. And historically, any, in any case, it's the uh, the Congress, which uh, determines the budget. So there's a fair way to go on that one. They're still arguing about the replacement for the Obamacare or, or healthcare system in the US, Affordable Care Act. Um, so that's yet to be worked through. And so I suspect that uh, it's going to be several months yet before we get firm details in terms of what's happening regarding his uh, pledges regarding tax cuts and um, and infrastructure spending in the US.
1: The other interesting thing is Theresa May is uh, set to announce uh, Article 50, trigger Article 50 on around March the 29th. I mean, that potentially could set off two years of economic shocks to the system. And What's your view about that?
3: I guess my view regarding Brexit is that it's interesting, but it's mainly a relevance to the UK. I kind of think after the experience of last year that whatever happens here will will have a huge impact on the UK economy. But at the end of the day, the UK economy is only two and a half percent of world GDP. It's uh, It's not like China or the US or even the Eurozone. And I think the real big issue here is to what degree the Brexit debate and votes and final exit impacts the rest of the Eurozone. So I think there's a long way to go in the UK a couple of years worth of negotiations they might get to the end of that period there's there's still no deal in which case they just get a a separation in which case um, britain will trade with the rest of europe just like any other country outside of the european union in other words it won't have any special uh, trade rights with uh with europe and of course that would be quite a sharp adjustment affecting the uk economy but at the end of the day what really counts here i think as an australian looking globally um, is what all of this means for the rest of Europe and interestingly since the Brexit vote in June last year there's been three elections now in Europe which have actually seen some rejection of the populists. The uh, the Spanish vote just a few days after the Brexit vote in June last year saw Podemos, the anti-euro sort of left-wing party, um, lose support um, and a centrist government was ultimately formed in Spain. Then we had the Austrian presidential election in uh, December, where the uh, the far-right, again, anti-Euro candidate was rejected in favour of a um, pro-Euro candidate to be president. And more recently, of course, in the Netherlands, with the uh, the, 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 the Dutch Freedom Party of Gert, Hurt Wilders um, not doing anywhere near as well as expected, only getting about 13% of the vote. So, all of those things tell me that so far anyway, Europe uh, is not going down the path of um, further exits from the European Union or the Eurozone. Um, Europe, if anything, seems to be uh, yeah, sort of looking the other way, you know, looking at America and looking at uh, the UK and saying, well, we don't want that. We don't want uh, populism to take over. But uh, I guess there's still a bit to go on that front. Um, obviously, we'd like we to see how the, the UK exit itself pans out. And of course, there's more elections coming up in Europe including in April and May and, of course, in June in France with the presidential elections and then some uh, some parliamentary elections uh, in June. So we've got to see how that one goes. But anyway, I, th- I think that the big implication of all of the Brexit Debate was really, for us in Australia, it was really about what what it means for the rest of Europe and so far the rest of Europe seems to be hanging together.
1: The other big one is, of course, uh, the election in Germany in September and and the question is what will happen to Angela Merkel? Well, that is a big one, but
3: uh, I kind of think that uh, it's interesting. Over there, the Populist Party was called Alternative for Deutschland, sometimes simplified to AFD. They're now getting 10% uh, poll support. So this idea that there'd be an uprising of populism in Germany, you know, rebelling against uh, the requirement that Germany support all these southern European countries seems to be uh, fading. And interestingly, the, 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 uh, the contest in Germany seems to be between uh, the Christian Democrats and CSU, I think it's called, um, Angela Merkel's party and the Social Democrat. And these two groups are currently in coalition together. But interestingly, the leader of the Social Democrats, the new leader, there he's enjoying quite popular support um, but he's more pro-Europe than uh, than Angela Merkel is so it looks like either we get a continuation of the same with Angela Merkel leading Germany markets would go ho-hum alternatively we get a shift towards the social democrats initially markets might be a bit nervous with that outcome but social democrats are actually more pro-Europe than Angela Merkel is and you could actually see uh, see some developments coming out of Germany which could actually be very positive for Europe in the sense that Um, The Social Democrats would probably want to engage in more fiscal stimulus in Germany, which in turn would help the rest of Europe. That's something that uh, many have been saying Germany should have been doing all all along. The best way to help Italy and Greece and what have you was to, to undertake a bit of stimulus Um, in Germany, which is, of course, one country that can do that.
1: And, of course, uh, the Social Democrats are unlikely to form any coalition with the AFD.
3: Well, the Social Democrats definitely won't be forming a coalition with the AFD. They're diametrically opposed to each other. If there is going to be any coalition, it's between the current coalition partners, you know, Angela Merkel and the Social Democrats. So that's just, again, a continuation of the same, um, which I think is probably the most likely outcome. But it's just worth bearing in mind that the alternative outcome is actually a more pro-Europe outcome and would ultimately be something that might be be a good thing for Europe even though I think a lot of people have become attached to Angela Merkel and have a lot of respect for her but well time will tell on this one but In terms of uh, European elections and countries most at risk, Germany seems to be well down the list um, in terms of wanting to exit from the euro. Interestingly, support for the euro amongst Germans is currently polling around 80 percent, very, very high. So the Germans seem uh, quite content to hang in there. Um, if I was going to be worried about one country in Europe, it's probably Italy. But it looks like their election might be put off till next year.
1: Italy's always been a, there's always been a question mark about Italy forever. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's precisely right. And maybe we should see it that way. That There's always that uncertainty about Italy. And...
1: That's right. But uh, all up, uh, you're saying uh, the eurozone it looks like it's likely to continue. Yeah,
3: it looks to me like uh, the eurozone will continue Keep on keeping on basically. And I think a lot of this fear that the Eurozone is going to break up, which has been a constant uh, source of debate since 2010 when the Greek uh, debacle first started hitting the headlines and impacting financial markets. So th- this issue of a breakup has been a, a long going debate, nothing really new. Um, but I think those risks of a-, of a breakup in Europe are actually overstated. And Europeans, when they're asked, you know, do you identify with Europe as much as your own? Nationality, interestingly, many of them do, unlike the British who uh, actually don't don't identify much with Europe as a whole,
1: and 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 never have,
3: and never have. I mean, the people of London might, but the rest of England uh, tend not to. I think the the UK vote in hindsight, I guess, was probably a bit more ob- a bit more obvious that it could go that way. In fact, the polls prior to that uh, that vote were quite close, whereas that's sure. not what you're seeing in. Uh, in the rest of Europe, there seems to be a lot more support for the Euro and a lot more support for for Europe staying together.
1: Shane Oliver, it's always a delight talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. So, how do you read that? Well, yes, and of course, markets are now tanking around the world because of the concerns about the Obamacare legislation.
0: That's right. I mean, the uh, New York Stock Exchange down 200 points, the S&P.
1: That's right. And and it's being replicated in markets right around the world. And uh, so, you know, you've got fed and then you've got two years of potential economic shocks coming with uh, negotiations over brexit
0: and of course the asx wasn't proof against it shared about 26 billion in value certainly did i know it's on paper but it's that's money really it's money anyway now the news
1: finance leaders from the world's largest economies including australian treasurer scott morrison have bowed to pressure from president donald trump leader of the world's biggest economy and have scrapped their long-standing commitment to free trade and rejection of protectionism. Following pushback from U.S. officials, led by U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. the G20 finance ministers on Saturday issued a mildly worded communique saying the countries are are working to strengthen the contribution of trade to their economy. Now, Donald Trump has been pursuing an America First policy since taking office with policies including penalties for companies which manufacture their products abroad. And the concern now is that the watered-down communique would give Trump more scope to impose tariffs and bring in his a so-called border adjustment tax against trading partners such as China, Mexico and Germany. Now, you know, so there was no commitment to free trade and the G20 also failed to include a vow on climate change. And Mr Trump, of course, has called climate change a hoax in his budget release last week slash environment funding. Sounds like a Queenslander. So that's a bit of a worry.
0: It is. I mean, you know, now we've got the uh, higher possibility of a trade war with China with all the implications for us and for the rest of the world.
1: Now, uh, British Prime Minister Theresa May is to officially notify the European Union next Wednesday that the UK is leaving the EU. Downing Street said she'd write a letter to the European Council adding that it hoped negotiations on the terms of exit and future relations could then begin as quickly as possible. And uh, Goldman Sachs is preparing to leave London and the EU will take Britain to to the International Court of Justice if it tries to walk away with paying an estimated 50 billion euro divorce bill. Now, uh, the draft plan threatens a long legal battle at The Hague to grab back what the EU regards as the UK's liability for its 43-year membership. An EU official, in response to Theresa May's threat to leave with no deal if the Brexit talks cut up rough, said, in that case, it's see you in The Hague. (laughs) But I think all of that's going to send shocks through the global economy over the next two years.
0: That's a big element, Bill, isn't it?
1: That's right. And there is now a question whether market bull run is over, stocks worldwide are tanking to their lowest level since the Brexit vote, amid mounting worries that Trump won't deliver his tax cuts and other policies, amid stalling over the negotiations for replacing Obamacare, and that concerns globally are overvalued. Despite this, many indices are still at record highs, or near record highs, and and this has been a complete reversal of the pattern in markets since Trump was elected in November.
0: Yeah, and of course we've got a slight crisis in in Canberra with Jackie Lambie screaming about the uh, cuts in uh, welfare.
1: The government has signalled that it could dump its 10-year company tax plan in the May budget. The Treasurer Scott Morrison has opened the way for dumping it by indicating the government has lots of other policies around areas such as trade, innovation and infrastructure to drive jobs and growth. And the government is struggling to get the tax cuts up in the face of opposition from Labor and the Greens and only partial support from the Nick Xenophon team only allowing a 27.5% rate for all companies with a turnover of up to 10 million. Now Gary, the Senate will vote next week on the proposed 27.5% 27.5% tax rate for businesses with nose of up 10000000 million.
0: It'll probably get through, do you think, or not?
1: I don't know if it will, which is why the government is now hedging its bets and saying we don't need tax cuts to deliver a stronger economy.
0: Oh, well, <laughs> situation normal, still all messed up.
1: The price of iron ore has fallen the most this year, retreating below ninety dollars a ton. The spot price fell U.S. three dollars ninety to eighty-seven fifty-nine a ton, according to Metal Bulletin. And the fall has been attributed to Chinese steel mills approaching the end of their stockpile build. And while this is a big percentage fall, Goldman Sachs is warning the price could reduce even more dramatically later this year. And Macquarie is saying it could end up somewhere around fifty dollars,
0: which it was close to about what a year ago.
1: That's right. So what that means is, of course, that all the uh, Mining companies like BHP Billiton And Fortescue And Rio Tinto And South 32 Have been taking a bath in the market Two of Australia's most powerful regulators The Australian Prudential Regulation Authority Chairman Wayne Burrs And Australian Securities Investments Commission Greg Megcraft, Believes Australia's bubbly housing environment Have put Australian banks in a high risk environment And it's a view that's likely to heighten speculation Of more curbs on property investors They were speaking at the annual ASIC Forum in Sydney on Monday Mr Burrs said he refused to use the b-word referring to bubble but he said if everyone isn't careful the risk in the system is going to rise he said this was being created by a combination of high and rapidly rising property prices in major cities record household debt slow wages growth and strong competitive pressures among lenders asked if apra was looking at imposing further restraints on home lenders he said watch this space now greg Medcraft said he thought for some time there was a housing bubble he said banks should not be lending money to people who could not afford to pay he said the housing market is bubbly and that he's really concerned consumers don't put themselves in above their head. He said house prices have been typically about four times average earnings over the long term. This suggests the current prices, he said, were out of whack with historic metrics. And the comments come after Reserve Bank of Australia Assistant Governor Michelle Bullock told a conference last week that regulators were prepared to do more if needed, with the effectiveness of prudential measures introduced by APRA in late 2014 targeting investor loans were beginning to wane. And that also coincided with Treasurer Scott Morrison giving the clearest indication that the government will support tougher microprudential rules brought in by regulators to boost housing affordability and curb demand for properties in cities like Melbourne and Sydney, where prices have surged at double-digit rates. Now, Scott Morrison's budget is expected to unveil measures to make it easier for people to buy a house, and he said regulators, led by the RBA and APRA, would be... Quote, using the levers that they have. At the same time, Gary, the RBA has warned of growing risks in the property market with rising debt and weak gro- wages growth, signalling that there's no plans to raise or cut rates uh, given the risks around the housing market. The RBA showed in the minutes of its March board meeting that it's trying to balance hopeful signs for the economy against making any missteps with the housing market. And the Minutes said, recent data continues to suggest there's been a build-up of risks associated with the housing market. And this has varied around the country, but household debt is rising. And the RBA warning coincides with figures from the Australian Bureau of Statistics this week showing massive growth in housing prices rose 4.1% in December quarter. Melbourne recorded the largest growth of all capital cities at 10.8%, followed by Sydney at 10.3%. And the RBA said rising debt was also made more difficult with low wages growth. The RBA also showed it was concerned about the labour market with rising unemployment. So that's a big worry. And Chinese investors
0: are still in the market despite the uh, government rules. They, maybe they're not borrowing, but they're bringing in cash.
1: Australian consumer confidence has plunged to its lowest level since April 2016 on the back of last week's spike in unemployment low wages growth. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell 1% down for the third week in a row. Households' views on the 12-month economic outlook fell 3.3% last week after a sharp 5.2% fall the previous week. And consumers are less confident about future economic conditions, and that sub-index fell a solid last week, and that's all because of low wages growth and rising unemployment.
0: Yeah, wages. Actually, there's no real growth in wages. It's flat. Has That's been right. has been for years.
1: Now, Gary, we're in for a battle royale over Adani. Despite mounting opposition, Adani says its long-delayed $21 billion Carmichael coal mine will be up and running in August. The Indian media reports the company chairman, Gautam Adani, has declared his board is expecting final approvals from the Australian government by May or June. And he says they need just three months from there to begin the work on the mine, which means they'll kickstart work from August this year. And the company still faces a number of legal challenges from environmentalists who say the project will damage the Great Barrier Reef, already threatened by climate change. The Australian Conservation Foundation is now waiting to learn if its latest federal court challenge against the controversial coal mine in Queensland's Galilee Basin has been successful. Now, Queensland Premier Anastasia Palachek, who visited India last week with a 25-strong delegation, was reported by the Indian press saying she didn't believe there'd be obstacles to the federal parliament approving the project. But the battle is going on. Well, Bob Brown's...
0: Uh... Joined it in Canberra as well.
1: That's right. Bob Brown has joined it. And also there's been letters to the Bombay Stock Exchange about Adani, a shell company of Adani seeking approval for that loan from the Australian government and not Adani.
0: And the shell company's worth almost no money.
1: That's right. So there's been there's going to be a lot of water to go under the bridge there.
0: And there's a bit of Trumpism in it all, because I noticed that the uh, an executive of the Minerals Council has said, it's a shame because Australians use 13 times more power than the average Indian. <laughs> so- Now we're being accused of depriving the average Indian of electricity.
1: Oh, right. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll see. The receivers of collapsed electronics chain Dick Smith have launched legal action against eight directors and executives, including ex-CEO Nick Obood, for alleged breaches of their duty to exercise reasonable care. Beria Hodgson, on behalf of Dick Smith Holdings, is seeking to recover amounts equal to Dick Smith's 2015 interim and final dividends and losses from the management of inventory. And that's in a claim lodged in the Supreme Court of New South Wales last week. And finally, infrastructure and mining firm Do- down at EDI has launched a $1.27 billion bid for catering cleaning services company Spotless. And the offer is at $1.15 per share, which is a 59% premium to the value of Spotless shares on March the 20th. Now, Dana acquired already 19.99% of Spotless on Monday with the aid of UBS. And the offer seeks to create the largest diversified integrated services manager in Australia and New Zealand. And this opportunistic takeover comes after Spotless shares hit an all-time low of 79.5 cents in February with a reduction in dividends following a 350 fifty eight million dollar half year loss that included heavy write downs.
0: Yeah, it makes it Downer EDI a very interesting company, but they're going after the sandwich and cleaning market. And the and the pies of the football. And the pies at the football. And never forget that. Big sales.
1: And that's it for this week. And you can tune in to us on Twitter at Talking Biz Z -Z, or on Facebook. In the meantime, take care, and next week we've got a fantastic interview with Steve Ryder from mybottleshop.com.au. All about online booze. That's right, it's going to be fascinating. Take care, and we'll talk to you next week.